You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Greg and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is Halloween, October 31st, 2022. Monday, another wild week in the markets last week. It was a week from Friday that an article in the Wall Street Journal appeared that basically indicated that the Fed was going to pivot or slow down its increases in rate hikes and that they would lead on that information in Wednesday, November 3rd's Fed meeting. The Fed is expected to increase rates 75 basis points for November. And then the market was previously expecting that they were going to increase rates again, 75 basis points in December. But that article indicated they may go down to 50 basis points or 25. Subsequently, the market has rallied. We're about 10% off of the lows and about 18% off the highs as things stand right now. So as you would expect, we're going to know more, obviously, on Wednesday what's going to happen. There's a lot of other things going on. Bad news is starting to come out, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And uh, even though bad news is probably going to still come out, like we've talked about in past episodes, markets tend to look forward through bad information. So layoffs, foreclosures, defaults, et cetera, that kind of stuff can happen in a rising market, believe it or not. So anyway, interesting times ahead of us. We've got a lot to talk about today. Doug, what's your impression of what's going on today's day and age? I read over the weekend this really good article by in the Wall Street Journal by Jason Zweig, and he talks about the title of the article is What to Do When You Know What Stocks Will Do Next. And the idea here, he goes through October 13th, the Labor Department announced its CPI numbers. And if you recall, the hope was that CPI would be lower, that inflation would be lower on a month-over-month basis. So it would give the Federal Reserve ammo to reduce its level of rate hikes. And so that would be called the Fed pivot. And inflation numbers came in a lot hotter than expected. And so the initial reaction of the market was that it was down 2% or maybe even more than 2% on the 13th when that news came out. And then I think we talked about this on last week or the week before his podcast. It reversed and it was like the single biggest intraday reversal in decades. It went from like down 2 or 3% to up 2 or 3% in a single day. And Zweig talks about is if you knew that inflation was going to be hot the next day and you had that foresight and that information, how would you have reacted with your portfolio? And I think most people, ourselves included, would have thought the market would be down. And so he just makes the case of trying to take these daily and weekly indications from whether it's central banks or just geopolitical issues around the world, sort of throwing that out and saying, look, I have a long-term plan. I know that stocks will oscillate over the short term, but over a long period of time, I should expect a reasonable rate of return, sort of stick with that framework. So that's what I'm thinking when we're doing these weekly podcasts and we're commenting on what's going on in the markets weekly. But just to remind everybody that over a long period of time, none of this is really going to matter, number one. And number two, even if we had foresight into what's going to happen with the Federal Reserve this week or... You would have gotten smoked. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you would have shorted the inflation way above what the market was expecting. You would have put on all the shorts and and then next thing you know, the market swings back up from the bottom 6% basically in one day. 
Right. So you're right. It is a exercise in futility to try to work yourself up about all this, because even if the data comes out and it confirms your you know worst held beliefs, the markets can sometimes disregard that and look forward to the next thing. Yeah. And I saw this is from a tweet from Lloyd Blankfein, who was the former CEO of Goldman Sachs. And this is on December 29th. He says, seems everyone October 29th. negative on the market with sticky inflation, more rate hikes, other bad stuff ahead, yet inconceivable for all pundits to be right, but often all are wrong. Positives may be lurking, Fed pause, Ukraine truce, China lockdown end, etc. Sentiment can shift suddenly. Yeah. I think people get overexposed on one side or the other, whether too long or too short, and they have to either sell or cover or whatever. And that can exacerbate a move, positive or negative. Right. That's exactly why the whole idea behind like what we do is we're managing portfolios based upon people's like lifetime cash flow needs and building buffers between their equity portfolio and their expected living needs. And that you would never like want to trade your retirement or your nest egg on what's going on in the world because over the short term things are can be so volatile as this past year has evidenced yeah it's tempting though (laughs) that sort of brings me to what i would say is the not good news which is and sam Rowe does a good job of putting this all together related to the economy and he basically is saying look i'm looking at all these data points And it's pretty clear to me that the economy is slowing and that it may be even contracting. Business investment, which has been a major tailwind for the economy, is finally turning around. You know, obviously, a lot of this has resulted from quantitative tightening and from higher interest rates. Mortgage rates have caused the housing market to turn completely cold. We have some data on the actual decline in home prices in some of the major cities we'll get to in a second. But there's just a lot of data points here that even though the GDP numbers for this particular quarter preliminary came in higher than expected, I think 2.6% quarterly rate for this particular quarter. What he goes on to say is, if you actually look at real final sales to private domestic purchasers, so this excludes government spending, it excludes net exports, which you know net exports are low because the dollar is so strong right now. The GDP climbed by a 0.1% rate in Q3, down from 0.5% in Q2. So contracting economy, which you would expect because liquidity is tight, interest rates are high, the housing market, a big piece of the economy, is effectively shut at this point. And so one thing that you pulled was, okay, what is actually happening to housing in uh, some of the major metroplexes? And so I think you have that data. What is that, Greg? Does not look good for a lot of cities that were really booming over the last couple of years, namely in California. This is uh, three-month annualized uh, home prices from CoreLogic by Carl Quintanilla. San Francisco, three-month annualized down 29%. Seattle, down 25%. San Diego, down 20%. LA, 14.8%. Denver, Portland, all in the teens. Phoenix, Dallas, Vegas, all really holding up pretty well, only down a little bit. Tampa's actually up. Miami is up. Charlotte's up. So a lot of the suburban areas like big cities that received a lot of residents from the West Coast, New York, et cetera, have held up pretty well. 
a lot of those bigger West Coast cities have gotten hammered. And some of the other places where people move to, like Denver, et cetera, also getting hammered as well. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. I think that regardless of where you look, it's going to be tough for people and for home prices and for people to buy homes at these rates. And I think that especially areas like we had talked about previously, like the median home in San Francisco at 20% down at today's mortgage rates was like $10,000 a month to service that debt. And it's not tenable really for those prices to stay where they are. So the data is just really matriculating down. Places that were relatively more affordable are hanging in there for now, at least, i.e. your Tampas of the world, Dallas, et cetera. But places that really blew up in terms of price, they were already expensive or really coming back down to earth. Yeah. I mean, it just comes back to simple math at some point. Just the level of cost to service debt doubling in nine months doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So Right. And in San Francisco, $10,000 a month. Yeah. yeah, that's $120,000 a year for just principal and interest. You got property taxes on top of that. You know, in a married couple, you have to be making at least a few hundred thousand dollars a year to be able to afford that. At least we have California taxes too. I mean, your tax rate is right. You get California taxes too. And so those areas are really inflated in terms of price at today's rates. It's really difficult. The other thing in terms of like the Bay Area that they have to contend with is, did you see the Facebook earnings last week? Yeah, actually, there's an article called goes into software spend, but all the big fang mega cap tech names are off. They had earnings last week, and I think Apple was the only one that had some level of decent earnings. But the idea here is there's just a complete shift in leadership in this market for 10 years straight, or more than 10 years, the NASDAQ companies really carried the weight, and now they're selling off. This article is called Grace Guys in Cloud Earnings. And basically it goes through the compound annual growth rate of the three major cloud providers, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, AWS. And their slowdown from fourth quarter of last year, they were growing at a Microsoft 50%, Google 46%, Amazon 37% rate. That was stable through first quarter of this year. And then now those numbers, Microsoft went from a 50% compound growth rate to 35%. Google 46% to 38%, Amazon 37% to 27%. These are the backbone companies, the infrastructure for any software company to be develop their apps on top of AWS or Google or, or Azure, Microsoft Azure. And so as software is going completely dry in terms of the amount of liquidity and venture capital money, et cetera, it's bleeding to these big tech companies. Then you have advertising for... Facebook, Amazon, Google, advertising is very cyclical. So the first thing you'll cut when you're trying to bolt down the hatches is those variable expenditures, and one of them is marketing dollars. What do you think is going to happen to all those like 23-year-old product managers at uh, Meta and LinkedIn and everything? <laughs> I think that's my absolute favorite thing to watch is these, <laughs> these people that are... Describe to everybody what we're talking about, Doug. They have these people on TikTok which I don't own a TikTok account and have never been on it, but I'll, I'll get a feed through Twitter of uh, these people that work at you know, Meta, Facebook, or LinkedIn or whatever. And they basically don't work. 
like they wake up, they go to the gym, they go into the office, they have a chef prepared meal for them. They have like a team meeting. They work for like an hour. Then they go to the bars with their colleagues from work. And it's like they could have like a work happy hour at the facility. Yeah. And they make like $150,000 a year. It's like crazy. And so the commentary with all of these videos is like the Federal Reserve can't stop yet because these people still have a job. Right. So I'm looking at the size of tech companies' workforces, and this is just arbitrarily picking some companies. Meta has 83,000 employees, Uber, PayPal, 30,000 each, HelloFresh, 15,000, Netflix, 12,000, Spotify, 10,000. These companies, they're slowing hiring is what they said now. Google has probably 100,000 employees as well, too, if not more. I used to work at Hewlett Packard when I was in law school. And at the time that I worked there, they had like 360,000 employees. These companies have so much redundancy. And Facebook, for example, their cash flows are basically drying up. So at some point, they're going to have to cut their workforce and stop all this, these types of activities that like, I saw a picture of a Google's headquarters in Tel Aviv, Israel, and they have like a slide that's like three stories, like an actual like adult size slide for you to go to the third floor or the first floor. All this stuff is so stupid. And that was obviously indicative of sort of boom times. Right. And it's just natural that these companies start to pare back and eliminate some of these perks and these jobs that right now seem a little ridiculous when their earnings are down and you know their net cash flows are way down. So you're starting to see it in wages too. This is from Fred, which is the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. And this Sam Rowe points this out. According to the BLS cost index, employment cost index, total compensation for workers was up 5% in Q3 from a year ago, unchanged from Q2. Total compensation for private workers was up 5.2%, down from 5.5% in Q2 over the prior year. So yeah, it's going to take some time to work this stuff out. But just because the Federal Reserve has raised rates doesn't mean it's made its way into the corporate environment yet. That's what we're seeing with hiring is still has been still pretty rapid. So some of that lag effect we'll start to see in the next couple of quarters with companies. Right. Yeah. And the markets may be rising during that when all these layoffs are happening. So it's just that's part of the interesting thing about this investing in the economy is the economy is probably going to look a lot worse as we go through the next six or so months. Just because everything that the Fed has done thus far is going to result probably in layoffs, et cetera, at companies like Meta. And the stock market may be appreciating at that time. That's the confusing thing about the markets. And it's counterintuitive that you would have a rising market in that sort of negative period of time. But that may well indeed happen. So that long and short of it is you may have negative market returns in that period as well, too. But Typically, markets look through that, and they may have already priced in what's about to happen and looking forward to the recovery, basically. Yeah, unless there's some major surprise. Right. One thing that makes me optimistic, this was a Wall Street Journal article from over the weekend. This was yesterday by Nick Timaraus at Wall Street Journal. They call him Nicky Leaks. Nick the Greek. Yeah, because he's basically the mouthpiece for the Federal Reserve, according to some people, in terms of like forecasting what the Federal Reserve is going to do at each meeting. But but his whole idea with his article was that interest rates may be higher for longer because there's so much excess savings still in households in the economy. So any sort of recession 
could be a soft recession in his mind because just the average savings that people have across all income groups. So not just at the top. In 2020, the average excess household savings by just the entire four quartiles of savers was less than like $350 billion. Excess household savings peaked in the third quarter of 2021 at like $2.25 trillion. So up almost like 7x from 2020 before all of the, the stimulus money came in during COVID. It's still above $1.5 trillion in excess savings in the second quarter of this year. So there's a lot of savings that people could work through if there was some issues related to higher inflation or loss of work or et cetera. This is obviously on average. There are some people that are worse off than others. But if you just compare this to pre-COVID to where we are today, this could go on from a Federal Reserve perspective of keeping rates at this level or higher for a lot longer than people anticipate. Just because if there is a recession, people have a lot of excess savings still to be able to bear the brunt of that sort of negativity. So anyway. Yeah. Carl Kinsania had something on Twitter that basically confirmed what you're saying. He said that Bank of America internal data indicates that some of the accumulated deposits are now being gradually drawn upon, particularly amongst low-income households, but there is little evidence of sharp rise in people living paycheck to paycheck. So we've talked about this previously with regards to this hitting people in the lower income brackets more so than the middle class and upper class with regards to the fact that like the demand for cheap beer is higher, cheap cigarettes, et cetera. And Bank of America is seeing that as well too, but it's still like Kentony is saying, it's not, it's not something that's causing people to live paycheck to paycheck yet. But this all remains to be seen and it may get worse before it gets better, but the markets may look through all that. So this is what's going on in America. Let's talk about what's going on globally right now. And as far as like, you know, the sort of doomsday scenario this past summer for Europe was the fact that as a result of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the fact that Russia is like sending a small percentage, if they're sending any natural gas anymore to Western Europe. But as a result of that, natural gas prices went through the roof in Europe and they looked like some sort of like cryptocurrency yeah. type of thing with parabolic straight up natural gas prices in Europe. But now, did you see this, Doug? This is from Andreas Larsen. This October has been the warmest October in 140 years in Germany. Yeah, people are loving global warming right, right. now. And, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, especially this year. I mean, this has got to kill Russia's strategy. But I also saw this as well, too, that all the natural gas storage facilities, so like what Europe has done to try to mitigate the fact that they can't get gas through pipelines from Russia is they've had storage facilities that can take liquid natural gas from the Middle East and the United States and Asia and just simply store that. But apparently those storage facilities are getting full and there's a glut of natural gas now in Europe as a result of the warm climate this year. Yeah, they're basically having to turn away LNG carriers because they don't have enough space to hold the gas. Right, exactly. It's amazing how quickly things have changed. We talked about it previously, how over the summer, how like the search term for firewood in Germany on Google was like through the roof. I mean, and now things at least for now, have worked in Europe's favor. So if you would have read that Russia is going to cut off Europe from natural gas, 
the natural conclusion would be that there was going to be some serious repercussions, which there are in Europe. But lo and behold, here we are. They have a glut of natural gas now. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's still early. Yeah, it's Halloween. So we got a long winter there. And then who knows what happens in 2023, 2024, unless there is some sort of truce between Russia and Ukraine. This is going to be a continued issue until alternative sources of energy are really online and and sustainable. Right now, there's just that heavy reliance upon Russia that they're trying to work themselves off of, but it could be a couple of year issue if this conflict in Ukraine doesn't resolve. But it's at least a good early indication. Yeah. So, and as it relates to the global markets, this is from Fernando Campanini. After 43 weeks, this is how things have fared in the global markets. Energy, as represented by the energy ETF, is up 68% year to date. Basically, everything else, every other sort of sector is down besides energy. So it's really the only thing that have worked this year are energy and cash. Yeah, this is the most hated asset class for the last five years. Or last 10 years, at least. Since 2014, 15, I mean, that was the bust in energy. But yeah. Right. Everybody just wanted to own U.S. growth. And guess what the lowest right. of the major sectors of the economy are is QQQ, down 30% year to date. Which is the NASDAQ ETF. Which is the NASDAQ, exactly. So nobody wanted to touch energy and everybody wanted to own all growth. And, you know, this is what's happened year to date. So diversification works. Right. Diversification works. If you know you're diversified, if something's not working in your portfolio, but if everything's working, you got to watch out basically. The same thing goes with regards to what countries that in the world are, you know, doing well this year. The worst single performing country besides Russia or major economy besides Russia is China, down 41%. China was getting all kinds of positive play from the investment media for several years as a growth opportunity. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's right-hand guy, proclaimed that China was like the best investment opportunity he'd seen in forever. And China's down 41%. Nobody wanted to touch Latin America with a 10-foot pole, Brazil, Argentina, Chile are all up 20%. I mean, a lot of it's related to commodities, and those are very energy-dependent areas. But again, this is just a demonstration of even if it's something doesn't work in the immediate past, doesn't mean you should avoid it because it might have a really good prospective future. But the USA, through 43 weeks, was down 18%. The world's down 19%. The stock market's almost doing better than the bond market this year at this point. Huh? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. We've talked about that being crazy. But yeah, the AAA corporate bond index is down 16% and the U.S. stock index is down 18%. Like I said, nothing's really worked this year except for cash and energy in Latin America from a global standpoint. Brazil just had elections this past weekend. Lula won that election. There's a really interesting post about how Latin American elections have gone, but basically... Almost for the last 11 elections, the opposition party has won the election. So it's been, it's, a wild, <laughs> right? it's basically upending the status quo has been the way to go there, but it's a wild ride as people who've listened to this podcast for a while now and know me personally know that I'm very interested in Latin America. Yeah. You're going on a research trip down there. Yeah. I'm going to go to Argentina and meet with some companies that we've invested in and just work on my language skills and stuff like that. But I'm really excited. It should be in. An amazing trip, but it is a, certainly a dynamic environment to say the least. And that exists almost unilaterally across 
Latin America. Yeah. If you look from an investment perspective and for people that we're not big proponents of individual stock picking, I mean, you get some sort of addiction to wanting to do something in a portfolio, but generally speaking, you're better off just in a diversified index and then just closing your eyes for a period of time. But if you were one to be an active manager, either selecting an active manager or doing some investment yourself, it'd be really difficult in the U.S. to outperform just the general market because it's so much information available. Uh, there's been so much investment in trying to beat the next person to the next piece of information by hedge funds and high-frequency traders and things like that, that I just can't imagine a scenario where somebody in the U.S. can do a really great job of actively managing a portfolio if you're not at that super, super high level. I can make a case for like Latin America specifically or some other emerging markets that have some semblance of stability in government. The markets are so inefficient down there too. And right. So it's like pensions and, and mutual fund managers, et cetera, just almost blindly buying US companies. And so any sort of price discovery on that is really impossible because you're competing against, like you just said. Yeah, you get like a time arbitrage. If you hold it long enough, you'll do better than the trader in and out. But knowing something different about Apple than the 250 analysts that follow Apple daily and publish research, it's like, how are you going to do anything better than that particular group of people? Yeah. And like the total market cap of the Argentinian markets is like, I don't even know, it's probably like $40 billion or something like that, Yeah, which is like, wouldn't even be in the top, the total market cap of the country of their stock market is not even like in the top, probably 100 US companies. So yeah, I guess the point here is we're big proponents of passive investment, low cost indexing. I could see a use case for active management or stock selection in those types of markets just due to the level of inefficiency there. Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. But in the meantime, we're going to have our podcast. That's going to happen in four weeks. And I'm sure we'll talk about it again. And thank you guys very much for joining us today. And we hope you enjoyed. And if you like this podcast, give it five stars. Share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. And come join us again next week. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.